Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke and finish up our study of chapter 8. We'll be discussing what Jesus taught about the storms and trials in our lives. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 8 and turn to verse 19, we'll begin our lesson. So why don't I open us up in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you again for this day and for this group and for those that are listening in. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we thank you for all the blessings you continue to pour out on us. And we ask that you just use this time in a way to continue to make us more Christ-like. Wherever you lead our discussions today, let them resonate with us in a very special way that we can actually apply it, not just gain knowledge, but actually apply it in our lives so that we live differently. We live the way that you want us to live. Make us into the people that you want us to be. Thank you again for your son. We would be lost sinners. We are lost sinners. Yet you have given us a precious gift, the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal life with you. And we are just so grateful and don't let us ever take that for granted. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we didn't finish Luke 8 last time. We had a lot of great discussion. We only made it to verse 18. And so where we are in Luke 8, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. We can see in Luke 8, verse 1, he was going from city to city and village preaching. And we also spent some time, he taught the parable of the soils. We discussed that a little bit, and that's about where we left off last time. So we'll pick up right here in verse 19. Keep in mind, there's a big multitude of people now that are following him. In verse 19, it says, And his mother came to him, so this is Mary, and his brothers also, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. So there's this huge multitude. And it was reported to him, Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. And so when we read in Mark 3.21, it says that they actually thought Jesus had lost his senses and remember, his brothers didn't come to belief until after the resurrection. They may have also been worried about Jesus because this large crowd was starting to gather and they were seeing the hostility of the Jewish leaders. So they may have been worried about him from that standpoint. Let me also just touch on this. I think this is a good place to bring this in. This also goes directly counter to what's taught by several denominations, including Roman Catholics, that Mary was a perpetual virgin. First of all, we see here, let me just read real quick in Psalm 69, 8. This is a prophecy. It says, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. That was a Psalm of David written hundreds of years before. So his family, they're thinking he's lost his mind. And as I said, you can look over in Acts 1 verse 14 that it actually shows where they came to believe after the resurrection. Then also Joseph is not mentioned really in any of the Gospels after the incident in the temple. You remember that we read in Luke 2 41 where they left Jesus behind at the Passover. It's presumed that Joseph is dead by this time because we don't hear about him anymore. And then you recall that Jesus told the Apostle John to take care of his mother Mary from the cross. You can look at that in John 19, verse 27. And as I said, Jesus' brothers didn't believe him until after the resurrection. 
But Mary understood really from the beginning who he was. She saw him as her Savior. You can look at that in Matthew 1, 21 and Luke 1, 47 when we were there. I'm bringing all this up because Jesus could have very easily told us here if he wanted to, to pray to his mother or to worship her like many Catholics do, but he didn't. And I also want to point out, we'll get over there in a few weeks when we get there, but if you look over at Luke 11:27, I think that would have been the very perfect place for Jesus to tell us because here Jesus is out teaching in verse 27 of Luke chapter 11. It says, and it came about while he said these things, while he's teaching, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed, talking about his mother, So that would have been a great place to say, yeah, you're absolutely right. And be sure you pray to her and worship her. And she's going to intercede for you. And blessed are those who look to her as a saint that they can pray to and worship and what have you. Well, he didn't. In fact, look what he says in verse 28. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And so I just wanted to point that out. And so let's go back over to Luke 8. And you'll see what he says here, which is along the same lines. It says, verse 21, But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and do it. So he wasn't dishonoring his mother and his family. But what he's saying is blood relations aren't near as important as placing your faith in Jesus Christ and becoming a child of Jesus Christ, a child of God those relationships, the spiritual relationships are what matter. It's not about your human relationships. It's about your faith and obedience in a personal relationship with our Lord. So a little sidebar there, but I wanted to point some of that out to you. I thought that was a good place to do it. Verse 22, now it came about on one of these days that he and his disciples, so this is more than the 12 apostles, got into a boat And he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. When we look in Mark 4, 35, he tells us that it was evening. So it's after he taught the parable of the soils, and it's after that time. It's in the evening, and they all get into the boat. And when we read in Mark 4, 36, we also see that there's probably some other boats with them. John 21, 3 appears to indicate that even Peter, Andrew, and James, and John, that they still had their fishing boats, even though they had left everything to follow Jesus. But it looks like they still had access to the boats. So they launch out in verse 23, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. And they began to be swamped and in danger. And in fact, Mark 37 says the boat starts filling with water. So it's a pretty dire situation here. So they're on the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake. As I've mentioned before, it's about 13 miles long and about 9 miles wide. But it's 680 feet below sea level. So what happens if you haven't been there before? And it is a beautiful area, I'll tell you. I was fortunate enough to go out there on a boat. There's steep hills on the side, so these winds can come in over the mountains there, and waves can get as high as 10 feet high. That's why they call it a sea, because it can look like a sea out there. It's known that the weather and the waves can get really rough. So this is happening, and they're in danger, it says in verse 23. 
in verse 24, and they came to him, they come to Jesus, and they woke him up. So he's sleeping, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. In fact, Mark 4.39 says it became glassy calm. So his disciples, they had seen all his miracles, but it's like all his other miracles were always happening with other people, and they involved people, but this miracle involved nature. It involved the wind and the seas. This was something that they had not seen before, and so now they're seeing that God controls the storms. And I think what he's trying to teach them here is not just the storms, the natural storms, But he controls the storms in our life, that when we have these trials, these difficult times, we've got to seek God and trust him and try to understand what it is that he's trying to teach us when we do encounter these types of storms. Look what he says. He says to them, where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? So Jesus is trying to teach them through this trial that they've got to trust Jesus, even in various different circumstances, because they're going to encounter lots of trials, particularly after Jesus is died and buried and ascends back to the Father. Every one of the apostles died a martyr's death other than John, and he was exiled to Patmos until he passed away. But let me show you a couple of verses because I think this is really some of the key teaching and what we're going to study today. So I want to dig into this a little bit further. Keep your finger here and go over to the right. Let's go look at John 16, 33. Just want to show you a couple of verses that hopefully some of this will resonate with you when you're going through your own trials. 16:33. it says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So he's saying, look, when we become Christians, we're going to have tribulation. We're still going to have difficult times in our life. But we should have peace. He said, in me, you should have peace. We just got to trust Jesus, that he's in control, he's in charge. And I think this is really applicable looking at our culture today, how everybody's running scared. Everybody's scared to death of everything. Everything from the COVID virus to global warming to you name it. Everybody's just running scared of everything. But when we realize that God's in control, we don't need to be scared. Let me show you some other. Keep going over to the right to Romans 8. And I'll jump in at verse 38. Romans 8, 38. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's something we can hang on to when we're going through difficult times. And I've got a whole list of these, but let me just show you one more. Let's go over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, just keep going to the right. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone a little too far. Come back to the left. And let's go to 2 Timothy 4.18. And it says, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is teaching them, let's go back over to Luke 8, that these storms are going to come in our life. Jesus is trying to teach us something, just like he's trying to teach the disciples right here with this storm. 
Just rely and trust in the Lord. He's got this. He's got this. And I loved what my pastor this past weekend said at church. He said, everybody's running scared to death of COVID. And he goes, the way I look at it is I'm here. If I catch it this week and die, I'm in heaven. That's a win. If I don't catch it, I'll be back here next week preaching to you. So I thought that was awesome. In any event, we just got to have peace. And when we're worried, it shows that we're not trusting God. When we're worried about something, we're not trusting God. So let's go back to the text here. Luke 8, verse 26. And they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. So this is where the tribe of Gad settled which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 27, And when he had come out onto the land, a certain man from the city met him who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothes for a long time. So this guy's running crazy. And he was not living in the house, but in the tombs. So he was living over where the dead people are. And when we read this account in Mark, if you're taking notes, Mark 5, 1 through 5, No one was even strong enough to subdue him. They would put him in chains and he'd break the chains. Not him, but the demons working through him. And I'll just note this because it can be confusing. Matthew 8, 28, where this account is, notes that there were two demons, that there were two possessed men. Mark and Luke only focus on the one. Matthew 8 also suggests that they were both delivered from the demons, as we're going to see. But Luke is just focusing maybe on the one that was the most vocal in any event. So Jesus comes upon this man that's demon-possessed. And seeing Jesus, I'm in verse 28, he cried out and fell before Jesus and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you? And he calls him, Jesus, Son of the Most High, I beg you, do not torment me. So Here's this demon. This is the demon talking, not the man. And demons know exactly who Jesus is. And they know their ultimate fate is going to be the lake of fire. And so these demons are saying, what are you doing here? This isn't my time yet, is it? And we read in verse 29, For he had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet would burst his fetters, which means chains and shackles, and be driven by the demon into the desert. So we see that Jesus, as we know, has power over the demons, has power over the angels. While the angels are superior to humans in intelligence and power, and if you don't believe it, go look at 2 Peter 2.11. It says that. There are many supernatural things that are described in the Bible. Some of the greatest are the fact that Jesus, being God, was incarnated. Jesus Christ took on human flesh and then reveals perfectly God to us. And then Christ came to save us from our sins. That's why he came. He came to save us, and he came also to destroy the works of Satan. That's in Matthew 1, 21 and 1 John 3, 8. And because Jesus came to destroy Satan, when Jesus was here, it touched off a lot of demonic activity. There's only, to my knowledge, one specific reference to demonic activity in the Old Testament. That's over in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where some demon-possessed men cohabitated with women. 
You can also see references to that in Second Peter as well as Jude 6. And there's a few references to people worshiping demons. You can look at Leviticus 17.7 and Deuteronomy 32.17 as well as in Psalms 106.37. But outside of the Gospels and Acts, there's really no references to demon possession in the New Testament. But there is going to be more demonic activity during the tribulation. But right now, what we are told in the New Testament is that they're really working behind the scenes. They're disguised as angels of light. Let me just show you one verse. Go over to 2 Corinthians because I think this really will help. We shouldn't ignore them. We don't need to be so worried about them. We got the Holy Spirit living in us. So there's no way for a demon to come possess us because we got the Holy Spirit living in us. But how do we see demons in the world today? Well, if you go over to 2 Corinthians, let's look at 11, verse 14. It says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his, being Satan, if Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. So what happens right now is Satan actually even comes into our churches and appears as a false friend. He doesn't come across as an enemy, and he doesn't attack the pulpit. In some cases, he's standing right in it and teaching false things to people through his demons. So even Jesus said that, watch out, they'll come around in sheep's clothing. So they look like they're really friendly people but they are trying to lead people astray. So we don't see demonic activity. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but we're not seeing it today like we saw when Jesus was there and like we will see during the tribulation. But they were in terror when Christ was here, and so they really couldn't help themselves. They wanted to reveal themselves when he was around. So let's go back to the text, Luke 8, verse 30. And by the way, that reference I made to Genesis 6, I'm not sure if I've got that interpretation right or not, if those were demon-possessed humans. It was definitely demon-involved. There were fallen angels that were involved somehow in cohabitating with human women. Okay, verse 30. And Jesus asked him, this is the demon, what is your name? And he said, Legion. Okay, I told you a few weeks ago I was going to explain legion to you which i did then legion is between three and six thousand soldiers we were talking about the centurion who commands a hundred soldiers so a legion has 30 to 60 centurions and three thousand to six thousand soldiers so this demon's name is legion and it says for many demons had entered him so there are thousands of demons in this guy all right that's what this means Verse 31, and they, meaning the thousand of demons, were entreating Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. Okay, the abyss is the bottomless pit where some of the demons are already. They're there right now. You can look in Revelation 9, 1 through 11. And some of those were the fallen angels that are referred to in Genesis 6. Some will be released for a very short time during the tribulation, but others will always be kept there in the abyss until their final judgment of the lake of fire. So these demons, they didn't want to go into the abyss yet. They know that they're going to end up in the lake of fire. 
but they proposed to Jesus, how about an alternative? How about these swine? We see some pigs over there. How about that as an alternative destination? So one thing I want you to see, Jesus is in complete control of this thing. They can't do anything without Jesus allowing them to do it. So verse 32, now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons entreated Jesus to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. You see, they can't do anything without Jesus giving them permission. Verse 33, and the demons came out from the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This just shows you, just like it says in John 10.10, Satan and his army, the other demons, the fallen angels, their mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's why they're here, and they'd love to take all of us with them. Verse 34, and when those who tended them, meaning the swine herders, I guess, when they saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. So they went and told everybody what had just happened. They saw these demons get into their herd of swine and then run down the bank into the lake and drown. Verse 35, and the people went out to see what had happened. In fact, Matt 8.34 says the entire city came out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they found the man whom the demons had gone out of. And he was sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. So he's sitting at the feet of Jesus like a disciple. All of a sudden, he's got clothes, and all of a sudden, he's in his right mind because the demons have left him. Verse 36, and those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gadarenes and the surrounding district asked him to depart from them, for they were gripped with great fear, and Jesus got into the boat and returned. Okay, so some say that the city people were upset with Jesus because of this economic loss that they suffered, because they lost their whole herd, all right? There were thousands of demons, so I don't know how many pigs there were, but there were a lot of pigs. The thing is, as we read here, nothing's really written about the owners being irritated. That's not mentioned. The focus is really on the transformation of the demon-possessed man. We see the man sitting at Jesus' feet, and the town becomes frightened because of the transformation. I think the better reading, and there's many commentators that say this, that the better reading is that these people became frightened because they know they've got sin, but they're more comfortable with their own lifestyle. In other words, they're more comfortable. They prefer to even have the man with the demons there. You know, that's what they were used to. They were afraid they weren't ready to leave their lifestyle, and so they just wanted Jesus to leave. If that's the case, then what these people are like are like that first group when we were reading the parable of the soils. They hear the word, and Satan snatches it away. They don't want anything to do with it. Just leave. Just leave. And I think that's probably a better reading because if they were mad at Jesus because of the economic loss they suffered, they probably would have done something physically to him rather than just asking him to leave. I don't know. But I think it's a good lesson, at least to show that there are people out there that here's Jesus. He performs these miracles. 
It's right there in front of him. They deliver this man from his sin, but they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. They witness all this and they say, no, no, just leave. Except the man, he has the right response. Look in verse 38. But the man whom the demons had gone out of was begging him that he might accompany him, being Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And he departed, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. That's what we should do, you know. When you go over and look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20, we're to go make disciples. We're to tell our story to others. That's the right response. This is exactly what all of us ought to be doing, proclaiming to everyone what great things Jesus has done for us. We all have a story. Verse 40, And as Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. So Jesus returns from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He comes back to Capernaum. And now we've got this huge crowd waiting for him. And what we're going to see now is there's going to be two very contrasting souls. One is going to be a very rich man, a respected leader. And the other is going to be a very poor, rejected, outcast woman. All right? Two very different people but they both have a desperate need that only Jesus can provide. So let's go back to the text, verse 40. And Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. So he's devoted to Judaism. He's an official in the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to entreat him to come to his house. So Jairus, he doesn't come representing the religious elite. That's not why he's there. He is a desperate father, as we will see. He's asking Jesus to come to his house, verse 42, for he had an only daughter about 12 years old, and she was dying. So that's his need. Jairus clearly had heard about Jesus' power to raise the dead that we read about in Luke 7 verses 11 through 15, and he believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. In Jewish custom, when you turn 12 as a woman, you're about to now become an adult. In fact, you then reach marrying age. That's this woman, and so he sees that his daughter, she's just about to now mature and become an adult, and yet she's dying, and it's breaking his heart. And it says, but as he went, so Jesus is agreeing to go and see his daughter, the multitudes were pressing against him. So all these people are pushing on him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage was stopped. Okay, so Jesus is going to go see this 12-year-old who's dying, and yet he's interrupted on the way there by this woman who has been having this terrible hemorrhage problem, this bleeding problem. And so his progress toward the 12-year-old daughter, it's halted by this other woman who is equally desperate. And we see Jesus always shows compassion with his miracles. While everyone was pressing in on him and wanting attention from Jesus, Jesus wants to figure out who is this that just touched me. And of course, Jairus is probably dismayed because like his daughter's dying. We can't stop here. You know, what's going on? 
Now, let me also point out to you, if you're taking notes, you can go over to Leviticus 15, 19 through 27, and it talks about this type of situation. A woman is unclean when she has this type of situation. She's an outcast. She can't attend the temple. When we read this account over in Mark 5, verse 26, it says she had spent all her money with doctors trying to get cured, and all they did was take her money and make her situation worse. And this must have been a fairly common occurrence back in the day because the Jewish Talmud, which is kind of like the Jewish book of religious practices, you might say, it has multiple remedies for this situation. So this wasn't just a unique situation, I guess I'm saying. But let's look at what Jesus says. We saw as soon as she touched it, her hemorrhage stopped. So she had faith in Jesus. She knew Jesus could heal her. Verse 45, and Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the multitudes are crowding and pressing in on you. So, you know, Peter's saying, I mean, come on, Jesus, look at the crowd. How are we supposed to know who touched you? I mean, you got to be kidding. But Jesus knew exactly who touched him. He wasn't really asking the question who touched him. He knew, but he wanted her to reveal herself to the crowd so that she could make a public profession of her faith and also show that she had been healed so she could be publicly accepted. She wouldn't be an outcast any further because she had been healed through the power of God. But I think it's also interesting that Jesus always knows when someone has received the power of God into their life. He always knows that. He always knows that. Peter's saying, come on, how are we supposed to know who touched you? And we see verse 46. Jesus said, listen, someone did touch me, for I was aware that the power had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Notice he calls her a daughter, so that indicates that Jesus received her as his child. She was restored physically, socially, as well as spiritually through the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came. So he's been delayed. Remember, he's on the way to go see this 12-year-old daughter who is dying. And while he's still speaking, he's standing there. They're not making progress towards where the daughter is. Someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So this delay had resulted in the death of the child. This unnamed messenger clearly didn't believe that Jesus could raise the little girl from the dead. They're saying, don't bother the teacher anymore. Too late. Your daughter has died. But Jairus believed it. And you can read the account in Matthew 9:18. He believed it. A little more detail over there. Verse 50, but when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. Jesus, I don't think, is making faith a condition to the resurrection of his daughter. But Jesus was encouraging him and assuring him that Jesus would do Jairus had already believed Jesus had the power to do. He definitely believed Jesus had the power to do that. 
And so when we go over and read the account in Matthew, we see the funeral has already started. Back then, you would have flutes were playing. They didn't wait a long time like we do. When somebody died, the funeral took place immediately. I mean, it was, let's get them buried. And they would hire musicians. They would hire people who would come and wail and cry over the deceased. And so by the time Jesus arrives, enough time has passed that this funeral has already begun. We picked that up over in Matthew. Verse 31, and when he had come to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the girl's father and mother. So Jesus's closest disciples, he singles out really for the first time in Luke's gospel. And now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. See, this is where this is going on. But he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. This mention of sleep, it's used in Scripture a lot as a metaphor for death. I could give you untold verses that I've looked up, but I won't bore you with. The body sleeps temporarily when we're in death, when we're buried. It's a metaphor. That's what your body does, but your soul does not. Your soul goes immediately as a Christian to be with the Lord. In fact, you can look at 2 Corinthians 5.18. It says to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. That's not our permanent place, but our soul goes to be with the Lord until rapture when our body will be resurrected and rejoined our new body with our soul. Everyone lives for eternity, and you'll either live in eternity with the Lord or you will live eternally separated from God. People who believe that when you die, you're just annihilated, you go away, they're going to have a very rude awakening because that's not the case. So let's go back to the text. They're all weeping. Verse 52, he says, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. So they all lacked faith in Jesus, obviously. They're mocking him and laughing at him. Verse 54, He, however, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she rose up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. So like all Jesus' healings, it happened immediately. It wasn't a progressive kind of thing. He didn't touch her and say, Well, she'll get a little better in the coming weeks. It was immediate. Verse 56, And her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Why is that? He didn't want the crowds to hinder his ministry, and he also didn't want the crowds to try to make him king by force. He knew that that news would circulate. He knew it would get around. He wasn't trying to say, don't talk about the miracle, but he didn't want to be known as just a healer. He wanted to be known that he came to forgive sins and to bring salvation to those who place their faith in him and actually believe in him and his death, burial, and resurrection. So as I summarize what we've read in Luke 8, again, for me, the section that we read about storms and trials and difficulties, they are going to arise. We are going to have those in our life. And when we have those, God wants to use each and every one of those in a way to help us grow in our faith, help us to grow in our personal relationship with him, learn to trust him. And at the same time, it helps others when they see the way we handle our difficulties as Christians that they want to ask us, how do you find that peace? We see you going through some really difficult stuff, and yet you have this peace. Why is that? 
which then allows us to share the gospel with them. We are going to, from time to time, face scorn and maybe even people laughing at us because of what we believe. We're told that's going to happen, but that shouldn't take us off of still sharing the gospel with people. We're still called to plant seeds. And what other people think about us, that isn't going to matter in the end. It's what does Jesus think about us and what has Jesus done for us. So we should tell others what the Lord has done for us. And I guess finally, the more time that we spend in God's Word and in prayer, the more that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to us. That's one of the reasons we meet together and have this Bible study so that we can grow. And I hope that we each take each one of these lessons just not as something as more information, but something that we can apply in our own lives. And so I'll ask you all, what is it that we've read here today How can we apply this in our lives? So I think we can apply it because I've noticed with my evangelism efforts that I seem to have the most leeway when I'm preaching to people who are maybe lower income or more broken. And Jesus did this over and over again from the demon-possessed man on the hill. He used that broken person to evangelize. And then he did with the woman in the crowd who touched him. Like she was so desperate in her life. She just wanted to be healed. Jesus used her for the advancement of the kingdom. And then, to go even further, he used the most broken, air quotes people on the phone, the most broken person here. She was dead. And he used her for the advancement of the kingdom. I think sometimes I've thought, why is it as we get more educated or more income that we pull away from faith? I just love how he uses the broken to advance his kingdom. I feel convicted to go preach to them more to the people who kind of just seem to be in less comfort in this world, on this side of heaven. Yeah, it's not to say that wealthy people can't get there because God definitely blesses people. You look at Job, you look at Abraham, you look at David. They were very wealthy, very, very wealthy. And he used them in a big and powerful way. There's others also. But you're right. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus said it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to get there. Because what happens? We start sort of getting comfortable. We get feeling like we're self-sufficient. We don't need anything. We got this. We can do it ourselves. And essentially, that's what kept happening with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Things would be going good, and as soon as things were going great and everybody was happy, that's when they'd drift away, start worshiping idols. It wasn't until things got really, really bad that then they'd cry out to God, we need help, we need help, we need help. God give them a new judge, things would get better, and it's just that cycle. Until you are in a place that you understand that you're helpless, it's really hard to see why you need Jesus. In fact, there's lots of people who say, well, that's just a crutch. You know, you can hear that in our culture today. Oh, you're a Jesus believer? I don't need that crutch. Like, I got it. Good luck. I can relate to um, everything that is being said. You know, the personal journey that you have with your relationship with our Savior, it takes many different roads. It is so important to be in the Word and understand what He's using you for. Sometimes it's not easy. What is God using us for? And what is our call? Even though you're in a place where you think you're being called, continue to look for opportunities where God can use you to serve and to spread the joy of what he's done in your life. It's also being in places where people are broken and you have those opportunities. 
Yeah, the hardest part, I think, and I'm still trying to improve in this area, is when you're going through a difficult time, an inconvenience or a tragedy, to sit there and say, thank you, God. I don't know what this is all about, but I know you're trying to teach me something through this. Just help me understand what you're trying to teach me through this trial. I'm not ever aware of anyone who won the lottery that then, because of that, they came to faith. I won the lottery. God blessed me so much. I I mean, it's got to be God. I was not a believer before, but I am now. Maybe it's happened. I've never heard of it. But to your point, there are lots of people who are going through a difficult time, have lots of problems. Those are the people that are ripe, that now they can cry out because they can't rely on theirs. They're finally to a place, and I think God uses that, gets us each to a place that we realize man, I am not in control. I do not have this. I need help. That's really good. I like verse 39, and you touched on it a little bit, but Jesus tells the guy that took the demons out of him, he said, return home and tell all the great things that God has done for you. And like a takeaway for me would be, in order for me to just to do that, I have to reflect on how God's moved in my life and have a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. So that I'm prepared. The opportunities I have every day when I'm talking to someone, someone's going to ask me, like, hey, how's it going or whatever. I have an opportunity there to share good news, but I can only do that if I remembered. Not like the Israelites. God yep. saves them. They forget, just like yep. we do. Yeah, the Bible tells us to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within us. Really, that's just your story. This isn't a complicated thing. All we have to do is just think about what has God done for us? Since we've become Christians, how has our life changed? And what peace do we have? For me, it was just the peace of realizing my sins had been forgiven and I was going to heaven. I wasn't in this place that I didn't know until I got there if I had done enough, done enough sacraments, done enough praying, done enough this, that, and the other to earn my way. That's not the case at all. And once somebody showed that to me, it was like, oh my gosh, I mean, this peace, this weight that's lifted off my heart, it was transformative. But it's different for everybody. Just what is it? How has your life changed? One of the things I loved about this, Luke 8, Jesus had authority over nature, which is where it's mind-blowing. Nature in a way to put you in a storm and then to get you out. Because he said to them, hey, let's go across the other side of the lake. And then that's when he puts them into the storm. And then he solves the problem he created for his disciples, which I love that. I love what you said, that Jesus has the power to put us in the storm and then take us out. It's still hard for me to appreciate that right when I'm going into the storm, but it causes me to reflect back on the three friends of Daniel as they were getting thrown into the fire. They didn't ask to be kept out of the fire. That's a real teaching for me. Quit praying to not go through the trial. You know, how many of us always pray, I can see this thing getting ready to happen, or maybe it's just beginning to happen. This looks really bad. Save me from this storm. That's not what we're supposed to pray. We should pray, I trust you. You're putting me in the storm. I know the storm will end, but teach me what you want me to learn in this storm. That's what we're supposed to pray, and I fail on that routinely. Yeah, and I think that's Romans 8.28. All things work for the good of those who love and are called according to his purpose. And so it might be you're asking, Lord, show me what the good is. Because in this case, it's they got to have a deeper revelation of he can command the sea to 
to be calm. He can command the wind to stop. That's what makes it exciting faith-wise for me that every day or every opportunity or every struggle is an opportunity to see God working. And I think, that, again, to your point, we're usually saying, God, get me out of this, as opposed to God, reveal yourself to me in this. My comment is to just have that trust and peace and it's appropriate to ask God to show me what you want me to see out of this, but he may not. And so you just have to, you know, be at trusting and at peace, even if you don't understand at that time what his purpose is in that turmoil you're going through. Yeah, y'all all know the story of my daughter. And while even to this day, I don't fully understand all of it. I can tell you God has shown me amazing things that he worked in a good way through that terrible tragedy. And it totally had a transformation effect on me. That's for sure. So even your worst tragedies, God can do amazing things if we will allow that to happen. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.